I just really, really try to have fun writing it uh, and clarity writing it. Because when you have fun and you have clarity when you're writing it, it's going to come through on the page. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Zach Ford is on the show. Zach is a screenwriter who sold his first screenplay right after graduating from New York University's Tisch School of Arts. This screenplay, originally entitled Scribbleface, would eventually become Scar 3D, the first stereoscopic 3D horror movie. Zach's most recent film is Watcher, a thriller he wrote under a pen name which premiered at Sundance this year. At the time of this interview, just a few days before Sundance launched two weeks ago, I had not yet seen the film as it was under lock and key until the premiere date, but I was able to see it as part of my press package during the festival, and it was great. Starring Micah Monroe and Carl Glussman, Watcher is about a young American woman who moves into an apartment with her fiancé in Bucharest, Romania, only to be tormented by the feeling that she is being stalked by an unseen Watcher in an adjacent building. This all happens while a serial killer is terrorizing the city. In this interview, we talk about what first sparked Zach's interest in screenwriting at age 6, how he wrote his first screenplay at age 12, entered a screenplay in the Nickel Screenwriting Competition at 16, and sold his first screenplay right out of NYU. We also talk about Zach's struggles in the industry after his first produced film, Scar 3D, was panned by critics, inspiring him to hack into Hollywood by creating a fake agency and submitting screenplays under pen names. Zach also tells us how Watcher finally got produced years after writing it, after being optioned multiple times, going into production, and then being shut down due to COVID before finally getting produced during the pandemic in Romania. I've interviewed quite a few screenwriters over the last three years, and Zach stands out as having more hustle, drive, and passion for the craft than any of them. If you want to read more about the hustle it took to sell his screenplay for Watcher, I'm posting a script magazine article Zach wrote about it in the show notes. It's a great read. Although this interview is shorter than most, it's filled with great tips for aspiring screenwriters, from a guy who seems to have screenwriting in his DNA. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with Zach Ford. Zach Ford, welcome to DreamPath Podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really exciting to be part of the build-up to the Sundance Film Festival, which started today, coincidentally. So congrats on getting a film into Sundance. Thank you very much. So Watcher, what a journey this screenplay has been on and what a journey you've been on to get this thing actually produced. I read up on it and your story in Screenwriting Magazine was quite harrowing. Can you tell us how many years it took from the time that you typed that first word on your screen or wrote that first word on your legal pad outlining it? How long it took to get to this point? Um, quite a while. Uh, I remember I came up with the title for the script uh, in 2016, I believe. I was living in uh, Manhattan, and then I moved to uh, Brooklyn. And I had a very simple idea of people looking through windows. Um, as you can imagine, if you've ever been to New York City, there's a no matter what apartment you're staying in, um, you can always inadvertently at least find yourself looking into someone else's uh, apartment. Uh, and I wrote it 2016, I believe, uh, right at the end of 2015, maybe 2016. 
uh, and wrote it rather quickly, uh, to be honest with you. Um, in a few days, I had a very clear conception of the characters and the the idea and the plot. And um, I was at the time writing about six screenplays a year. Hmm. Uh, and you mentioned the script magazine article uh, from last year. I was pretending to be my own manager. Uh, I was writing as quickly as I could, being as prolific as I could, um, sending out screenplays under my own uh, under pin names while trying to sell them as a as a manager. And I didn't really think much of Watcher at the time because it seemed so simple. But then I started to realize when I sent it out, uh, people really responded to that. Um, it was, uh, uh, and then it was it was optioned um, rather quickly. But to answer your question, from fade in to this premiere uh, at Sundance, five years. So there's a couple of things I want to unpack there. Your process of writing six screenplays per year under pen names. I understand why you wrote under a pen name because I read your article in Script Magazine, which was fantastic. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes to that article. Thank you. But can you tell listeners why you were using a pen name as opposed to your name? Because you have a lot of street cred coming in as a screenwriter with Tisch School of Arts training as a screenwriter and already having you know, one at least produced screenplay that made it to film, uh, actually two. So you had Scar, which was previously Scribble Face, right? Right. That kind of made it big in Russia and in Europe. And then you had Girls Night Out, which you wrote and directed. So why, why the pen names? I was in a, in about 2012 to 2016, I was in a very unusual uh, place. Um, as you said, I had cred, but some cred. Um, I graduated from NYU uh, several years earlier. Uh, I was a double major at Tisch. I'd sold my uh, thesis screenplay, which became, as you said, Scar 3D, which was the world's first stereoscopic 3D film to hit theaters. Uh, it was a it was a good thing, but the movie itself didn't really do too well, even though it had a strange path of, for instance, being number one in Russia. Uh, but the script didn't do too well. Then the industry started to change. Uh, there was uh, the writer's strike. There was new media um, agents and managers started uh, looking at less material, started putting up more walls. Uh, I'd shot uh, an independent feature, uh, I guess, as you would call maybe a directorial debut, uh, which I probably should have shot this as a short. I was still cutting my teeth and learning. It was like five or six years ago. Uh, so here I was a produced screenwriter. I had credits, uh, but I didn't have representation. And even though I knew that I was writing and writing and getting better and better at my craft, uh, I couldn't. It was the catch-22 of uh, needing rep to get rep, needing a manager to get an agent, needing an agent to get a manager. Uh, I'd parted ways with, I think it was Paradigm a couple of years earlier. And I was kind of in a strange lurch. Uh, and I knew something needed to be done. I needed to hack into, hack back into the industry because I'd been kind of pushed out of it for a couple of years. Uh, uh, it can be a, a fickle place. Right. So that's why I created this hack, if you will, of uh, getting an answering machine, uh, making up my company name, which was Barbaric, uh, using my own name as a manager. Uh, as I said, I'd been in a lurch for a couple of years, so people didn't really know who I was. So I was able to do that. People were under the impression that I made a pivot. Uh, and that way I could uh, appear like I, had, I was writing so many screenplays, I could appear like I had a stable 
of writers. Uh, if people passed on a script or didn't like a romantic comedy I'd written, I could just put a new name on it and it looked like uh, <laughs> it would look like I had a new writer. So people weren't, I, I wasn't wearing out any one brand too quickly. And that way I could also do uh, reconnaissance about what people wanted uh, and learn about also um, from straight from the producers uh, and agents or whoever, what they were looking for. And I did that for about three years, probably sent out about a dozen different screenplays, maybe 18, had a call sheet that was about 138 pages long. And after uh, honing my writing to make it more commercial, after I started seeing more clearly the targets that I had to hit to sell uh, projects, um, I finally optioned uh, Watcher. Wow. So did you ever get caught? with you know this I, I i hesitate to call it a, a ruse but you know this this fake company and you know posing as your own manager and using pen names did anybody ever call you out on it no one ever called me out i no one ever did i knew that when i knew ultimately uh if i succeeded i would uh lower the veil and say surprise mm -hmm. uh, and that's what happened with watcher and the reaction uh of people who'd read my work uh, I ended up sending the script magazine article to everyone I'd made contact with, and the reaction was um, positive. They still read my, they still read my work, and um, yeah. So you're uh, asking for forgiveness rather than permission, and uh, because you did Option Watcher, it, it worked out, and everybody's like, "Oh, that's that's cute," <laughs> as opposed to being. And it became part of the story too. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely did. Tell us about Watcher. I have not seen it, and it's kind of unusual for me to do interviews for films that I haven't seen yet, but it's under lock and key, I understand, until its premiere at Sundance. It's under lock and key until tomorrow uh, at 8 p.m. Mountain Time, mm -hmm. uh, where it'll have its virtual premiere uh, at Sundance. Uh, I haven't seen the completed movie, but I saw uh, a picture lock, which was pretty much the entire movie um, before, I think, the score and some visual effects uh, and some additional dialogue recording were put in. And it looks really good. It looks really good. I'm very excited. Uh, it was interesting to see, you know, as you can imagine, uh, the scenes and set pieces I'd written uh, on the screen. And I'm very excited. So can you give us the elevator pitch or the log line for the movie? Absolutely. Uh, so a married couple uh, move into a new apartment. It happens to take place in Bucharest. And upon moving, uh, it's this American couple, upon moving into this new apartment building, uh, the, uh, the wife begins to suspect that someone in an adjacent building is looking through their window into their window. Uh, so there's this creeping paranoia. And as she becomes more and more convinced that uh, she's being watched from this adjacent apartment across the street, there's also uh, a serial killer on the loose. Hmm. And that's the, uh, I guess that's the first, that's kind of the first act. That's the, that's the setup. That's where it picks up. Yep. Nice. So I'd like to go back to the option. Uh, the first option of the screenplay was Chloe Okuno attached at that time as director. When it was optioned. Yeah. No, Chloe came on, I believe after the second, it was optioned two, maybe three times. And I believe she was attached after the second option. Okay. Yeah. So when it was optioned the first time, that was pre-COVID, right? It was optioned pre-COVID. It was optioned a second time pre-COVID. 
Uh, and then it was going to go into production. Wow, all the years are blurred. Right when that week, when everyone began to know the name COVID, that was right in March of 2020, right? Right, yeah, February, March. That week when everyone heard the word coronavirus for the first time, the the movie was the watcher was set to go into production. And there were the press releases, it's going into production, it's going into production. And then it was shut down that very same week. And it was wait one year. We'll see what happens in a year. I couldn't believe it. It was a it was an up and a down. Yeah. So you were expecting a paycheck too, right? For your option date? Yeah, that that didn't really have a lot to do with it. The I believe at that point the screenplay had been had been bought. Um, but you know, all the all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed and it was ready to go. Mm-hmm. I believe it was even cast at that point, if I'm not mistaken. And then it was, you know, no one knew it was going to happen. That was back when they were saying, oh, COVID will be maybe a two or three week shutdown. And then it ended up being exactly one year. Mm-hmm. So when it goes back into production, I imagine that's a huge sigh of relief for you because of how crazy the industry is and how people just move on from projects. It was totally possible that it was never going to be made. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's all, I'll finally be completely relaxed about it when I finally see the movie tomorrow. You never know what's going to happen. <laughs> You're still on the edge of your seat waiting. Then I'll finally let my body relax as soon as I see those closing credits. Waiting for the next shoe to drop. Exactly. So what was the process like once Chloe got involved in terms of collaboration and rewrites? Uh, I wasn't on the set. Um, I was actually running uh, for mayor of my hometown in upstate New York, Mm -hmm. uh, right as the film went into production. But uh, it was interesting to see all the scenes that I'd written end up in in the movie. It was great. I think Chloe did a great job. Yeah. So in terms of the idea that you had going into screenwriting, and I, I know from reading about you that you started very young, I think age six is when you saw your first, you know, your first like formatted stage play slash screenplay in Courier Font, and then you wrote your first screenplay at the age of 12, which is insane. That's just an incredible amount of vision and drive for someone that age. But your ideas going in were obviously shaped by what was happening in the industry, probably in the 80s and 90s. How different was it when you actually jumped in and tried to become a screen screenwriter? And I know you got that first sale right out of Tish, which must have been amazing. But was there a pretty shocking difference in the reality versus what you thought it would be? Of course. Um, you know, when I was 12, uh, that was the 90s. Uh, Hollywood was very different. Um, it was the age of the big spec sales. Peep studios were buying everything. They were buying ideas for a lot of money. I got into writing screenplays uh, because my mom had actually written a screenplay that was um, a finalist in the Austin Heart of Film Festival. Hmm. So when I was 12, you know, I was 12, I wasn't thinking about writing screenplays. I knew I liked movies. But then when my mom was a finalist, uh, my family ended up going to the Austin Film Festival. Uh, and I got to you know see my mom's uh, screenplay read, read, read aloud by actors. And it, it really hit me, oh, like this is where movies come from. Nice. This is, uh, and I, I saw my mom's screenplay and then I was like, well, hey, I want to try that. I was always kind of like a, a, a verbal kid. I, like, I liked writing. And I remember at 12, I wrote my first, I just started writing. It was, I think my first screenplay that I ever wrote was about a president of the United States who goes into 
uh, Walter Reed for an operation and some terrorists see that as an opportunity to kidnap him. That's a great premise. I like it. <laughs> yeah. But that was, that was me at 12. And then at age 16, you entered a screenplay into Nichols, which is like one of the premier screenwriting competitions in the country, isn't it? That's right. That's right. Once I, um, I was kind of hooked at that point. And I believe uh, Greg Beal was the director or something at, of the Nickel at that point or involved. And I remember I placed pretty highly and he wrote, I got a rejection letter, but he'd written a handwritten note on it uh, telling me that this script that I'd written had been um, had done pretty well in the competition. And once I got that, uh, then I was really hooked because I said, okay, if I keep, if I keep working, if I keep uh, honing my craft, I can keep moving up. So it sounds like it was in your blood from a very early age. And then when you went to Tisch in New York, very hard school to get into, and one of the most preeminent programs in the country, was your focus still screenwriting or were you looking at a, a broader education in film and the arts? I went for screenwriting. I dabbled in playwriting. I uh, ended up double majoring in film. Um, my uh, college career was a strange one because I arrived from upstate New York in New York City uh, in 2001 as an undergraduate. And I got to college one week before September 11th. Oh my goodness. Uh, so I, it was my first time in a big city ever. I never even visited New York before. Uh, I didn't know what the World Trade Center was, uh, but I was working as a journalist for an upstate paper called uh, The Auburn Citizen. The some before I went to college, I've been, I was a correspondent. I was writing a bunch of articles about things going on upstate. So I covered it uh, and took pictures and essentially became a photojournalist uh, with the pictures about what was going on. So from that point on, the four years I spent at NYU were very different from, I think, an average college experience. We were that class who'd gone through that together. Mm -hmm. So we were, you know, we were kind of cut slack by the administration. Like we had, you know, we, we were traumatized. Mm -hmm. And, um, but we were writers. So we kind of got through it. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com slash newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. So you come out of Tish, and then you sell Scribbleface, which becomes Scar, and it gets 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. <laughs> but how, how, do you, how does that feel when the product that you wrote, at least this is the way I understand how it unfolded, what you wrote doesn't look anything like what's actually on the screen. So there were so many changes apparently that, you know, your your name is attached to this project that gets zero percent of Rotten Tomatoes, a remarkable accomplishment. <laughs> you know? You can really see how on a project, one vision that everyone believes in makes a good project. But I think that was really a time of confusion in the industry. So I'd written this script called Scribbleface. Uh, I was about 2007. New media was coming in. Uh, movies like Saw and Hostel were crushing it at the box office. I'd written a campy supernatural zombie movie. Uh, there were many producers on the project. Some wanted to keep it that way. Others wanted to make it more of a torture porn film, which it wasn't when I originally wrote it. Uh, there was a lot of dissension and conversations and disagreements on what the movie 
should be. Some people thought it should be in 3D. Other people thought 3D was a gimmick all the way through production. And there were just so many uh, disagreements on what the movie was supposed to be that when it finally came out, I think the result is a very kind of confused Mm -hmm. uh, jumble of what it was of kind of a mess. Um, So it was a huge, I was on set every single day. Uh, I was just out of college. I think it was like 22 or 23, Um, but it was a big learning experience to be on set and watch the movie get produced. Yeah. Given that this was your first project, your first film that was being made and that you were actually on set, did you realize how much of a jumbled mess it was at the time? Or was it actually when you saw it on screen, you're like, oh, wow, this is not what I was expecting? I think I knew. I mean, everyone's intentions were good. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, this was also the time of new media. So trends were moving even faster. I think some of the producers uh, on the project who wanted to make it more of um, a slasher film like Saw were generally right, but they missed the trend. Um, and I would say, yeah, there was there was a general confusion. There wasn't a cohesion mm-hmm. on set. I, I don't think anyone's ideas were necessarily wrong, but when you put 10 producers and a director and a cinematographer and actors uh, and me, a writer on a set who all have a different vision, the result is going to get mangled. I'd like to ask you about your process and what it takes to put out six screenplays per year. That seems pretty prolific for the outside looking in. That seems like an amazing amount of work product. So what does your, your day look like, your week look like, and what is the workflow? Are you working on multiple screenplays at the same time, or are you just focused on one and then you move on to the next? I do one at a time. Um, but yeah, I'm obsessed. You know, this is what I chose as a kid. Um, that's what I love to do. And um, I'm always going to do it no matter what. Um, there's been a lot of ups and a lot of downs, um, but I'll always do it. Mm-hmm. Beyond Tish, have you participated in any labs or workshops or anything like that? Or is it just. Once you left Tish, you were on your own and, and cranking out the work. Yeah, I've always been uh, a self-starter, I guess. Um, I don't have uh, any strange routines. I just get up, I get a cup of coffee, and I, I do my writing. Mm-hmm. Have I ever been part of any labs? No. I, have I been in any, uh, in any writer rooms? No, not yet. I think that would be fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I've uh, done some, co- uh, some writing here, with, um, especially with my manager, Ben. We work on projects together. But uh, we'll see. Maybe I'll be in a writer's room. Yeah. I like that. I think that would be fun. Do you outline first? Uh, more and more. Yeah. I think outlining is important. Uh, I didn't used to, but I do. Yeah. And uh, sorry for the, the geek out you know, process questions, but as someone who you know, writes screenplays or is aspiring to write them, I'm, I'm curious about your process. The program that you use, Final Draft, Movie Magic Screenwriter, Celtics, what, what do you use? Final draft. Uh, Celtics is pretty good. Um, I've taught some screenwriting classes and yeah, I know students can use that. Uh, final draft is um, what I usually use. But uh, oh, to go back and answer your question about process, uh, yeah, I, these days I won't start, I won't write fade in. I won't go to final draft until I know the beginning, the middle, and the end, hmm. even in broad strokes and I at least three set pieces. Um, there's like a. And a set piece is what? The scenes that the scenes where once you know the premise and once you know the characters and once you generally know how the movie's gonna feel, like an intuitive feeling about it, you start to see how uh like in Watcher, like 
before I wrote, I had an idea of a couple people moving in and being watched. And I just, I let it, I let it simmer. Usually I'll, I'll just give myself a week to go to bed thinking about it and wake up thinking about it. And uh, then for me, sometimes, uh, you know, what if scenes kind of pop mm. and, you know, what if she was followed into a movie theater that ended up in, in Watcher, you know, what if, uh, what if she was being watched and, you know, she went into a grocery store and uh, she thought she was being followed. What would that scene look like? And when I started to realize that there, because of the, you know, dynamics of the setup uh, that could lead to um, these set piece scenes. And once I start to visualize and kind of get a notion for them, then I start putting pen to paper and outlining. Then I start putting out like fun scenes that I like to watch. Even if I just put write them down on a piece of paper and put a little box around them, even if I don't know where they're going to fit in the story, I know like, oh, because I've you know, you have to watch movies. You, you think like, oh, that's how that would feel. That's that kind of scene and that kind of movie with that kind of stakes. Mm-hmm. And um, I kind of look at them like Legos, you know, like you have some scenes, you write them down on paper, you put a box around them. Now they're like Legos. You can move them around, you know, you can build with them. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, then the acts start to emerge and the structure starts to emerge. And then, you know, you have to have little scenes of interstitial tissue, but you know, until I, until I get the big swoops of some of the fun scenes, at least like as a flicker in my head where I can start to really feel them, I don't write, I wait. And I think that's like the thing that's made me um, improve as a writer is having that like patience. It's so much fun to just type fade in and just start writing. But I like, I really try to hold back. I'm going to find the more, like the more I hold back and not write until I'm really ready, the more antsy I get. And then the more my brain starts to fire and then because my brain wants to get writing, uh, it just starts like, I kind of hold myself hostage and then my, I, my brain starts to develop new scenes yeah, and better scenes. And I try to hold back as long as I can. And then it's always worth it because it's always worth being patient. It's always worth doing another outline. It's always worth like sleeping on it for another day. And that, that ends up making actually writing the script a lot more fun because then you know where you're going when you're writing. Yeah. How do you maintain focus during times of chaos where you know you have to get the work done, but there's just, you know, you could doom scroll on social media for hours and hours and <laughs> just, yeah. you know, it's, it has to be tough in times of turmoil. It is. I just, uh, I push myself hard, but I also like, I also don't. Um, if the writing's not coming that day, I don't beat myself up. If I want to doom scroll and, you know, fuck around an app a little bit, like, sure, I'll do that. Um, but I, uh, I try to more and more trust my intuition when I'm ready to actually write, when I'm ready to actually, uh, you know, commit to writing the story. I might've been hired for some rewrites. There are deadlines, but, uh, sometimes it's a little difficult, but, uh, you know, organization I think is key as long as I, you know, Mm -hmm. try to turn off the phone and just go for a walk or whatever. And it usually works out. So when you're writing, it sounds like a very solitary process, what you've just described. How soon do you bring in other opinions to look at your set pieces, to look at your outline, to make sure that you know the ideas are crystallized enough to go to the next stage? I wait at least until I know I've written a few good scenes or a few good takes. You know, you don't want to expose it too early. Yeah. You know, I try to like I try to poke as many holes in it as I can beforehand because you know it's hard to hear criticism um but you know i want to make sure that it's to a point where there's enough positives to where i know that it's going to start to people are going to start to see in it what i see in it mm-hmm. you know i give the writing enough time to do it enough justice to give it a good first impression 
Right. So when I was taking a painting class in college, one of the um, problems that I had was when to know when you're finished. When is the next stroke, one stroke too many, you know, with the brush? How do you look at screenplays through that lens of when am I done? When is enough enough? That's a really good question. I've, uh, ironically, um, I'm kind of a perfectionist, but I've learned to not be a perfectionist when it comes to screenwriting and really look at it as a malleable blueprint. Um, I'm not trying to, I freed myself from trying to come up with the perfect scene or the perfect bit of dialogue uh, or the perfect character. And I've really come at it uh, more in a fun, freeform, splashy kind of way. You know, if it's, if it's, if I'm going to write a script, I know that the necessities aren't perfection. The necessities are good characters with good scenes, uh, with good stakes. Uh, and I just really, really try to have fun writing it uh, and clarity writing it. Because when you have fun and you have clarity when you're writing it, it's going to come through on the page. Uh, and you can't, you can't get away with a lot. Uh, like in a novel, you can write around some parts that are better than others. You can't do that in a, in a screenplay. So I know that if it's flowing to write, I know that people are going, it's going to translate to the reader, but uh, the idea that there's something perfect, yeah, kind of holds you back because other people are going to interpret it. The actors are going to interpret it. So I try to come up with the general, you know, the general structure to the general feel of what's supposed to happen with those characters. And I leave it open a little bit. You know, maybe maybe there will be a rewrite. Maybe something will change. Right. But as long as you have the the forms, the structural forms in there, and the ingredients of just the basics, as long as the basics are in there, I feel good because mm -hmm. it's going to be reinterpreted. Um, as long as there's good characters, and you know what they want, you know, it's, it's always going to change. I don't look at it as like you know a painting. You want it, you want it perfect, and then you put it in a frame and you look at it. But you know, if you come at a screenplay as as not all of your responsibility. Uh, there's so many other people who are going to come in and put the print on it. Uh, it frees you. You know, it, it takes the pressure off. So basically, done is better than perfect. <laughs> done is better than perfect. And making sense is better than perfect. Right. Uh, and clarity is better than perfect. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So where do you see the industry going for screenwriters like yourself in terms of having a sustainable profession where, you know, what I've read about you you have hustled over the last decade like no other screenwriter I've ever read about. I mean, the amount of effort that you put into you. just getting your work seen and, and considered. And um, I mean, you're obviously so passionate about it, but it does not seem sustainable long term over the course of the next, you know, 20, 30 years. So, uh, and maybe it is. I mean, maybe I, I'm selling your your hustle short, but. Oh, geez, now I'm nervous. No, but it just seems like a lot. I mean, so so much effort that goes into, uh, you know, trying to get your work seen and, and then optioned and then made. But is there an avenue that you see for yourself that maybe is a little less agonizing that, you know, maybe is more of a steady paycheck, like you could get a job in a writer's room on a television show? How hard or easy is that? Are you seeing more opportunities now that you have a film in Sundance to, you know, have options like that? And I know it's kind of a broad, ambiguous question, but I'm just wondering where you, where you think your career is going uh, now that you have achieved, you know, this level of notoriety. Uh, you never know. 
you know, all you can do, I've worked at nine to five jobs um, in advertising and it was nice for a while to have a steady paycheck. But after a couple of months, um, I couldn't help it. I started, even when I was working in advertising, I just started writing screenplays at my desk again and shirking uh, the advertising work because this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to do it no matter what. And I think all you can do is take the temperature of where the industry is uh, and what people want and put in another variable of what you want to do as a writer uh, and keep working that calculus equation. Um, and you never know what's going to happen. Um, I think if you look through the whole history of Hollywood, uh, everyone has ups and downs. Uh, it's it's a, It can be a very tumultuous business. Uh, but what I'm going to do is just uh, keep hustling. Yeah. Keep your head down, do the work. Exactly. Not try to play a four-dimensional chess game, you know, playing 10 moves ahead when there's no way you can conceivably think that far ahead. There's too many moving parts, it sounds like. The one thing that is a constant in all of the variables uh, and all of the unknowns is if you go back to the basics and, you know, write something that you care about with good characters and good structure, uh, you're it's something's going to give. Yeah. You can do that. As long as you stay working on those lines, uh, doors will open. Yeah. Great advice. And uh, such an admirable amount of just persistence that you have put into this whole journey. Yeah. It's amazing. Thank you for saying that. So what is next for you creatively? I know you're working with Ben on some screenplays. Is there anything that we can look forward to uh, maybe seeing come out in the next six months to a year? I hope so. Um, I'm uh, currently in negotiations for a, a rewrite of a pretty big movie. Uh, we'll see where that goes. Uh, yeah, and Ben and I are are working on a lot of stuff. There's a sports comedy in the works. Uh, there's some uh, genre pieces. There's a thriller. There's a, another horror script I've written that's got a, a pretty big producer and a director attached to it. Uh, so we'll see, we'll see what gives, you know, things happen real slow and then things happen really quickly in the next minute. Right. And I know Watcher has been already picked up for distribution, right? By Cinetech, is that right? Yeah. They're handling the, the distribution, uh, the, the sales. Um, there was an article today, uh, deadline that the writer believed that Watcher was one of 15 movies uh, that would sell. So we'll see. Right. And the next big one is uh, I'm hoping the, ne the next one I'm leading uh, is a, uh, as I mentioned, a sports comedy about ultimate Frisbee, um, which I've been working on with Ben. So we'll see. Uh, well, it would be nice to change gears too. Mm -hmm. I want to do something uh, maybe out of the horror box a little bit. Yeah. Almost like a dodgeball type of. Exactly. Look at that. It pitches its comedy. Yeah, it. Yep. <laughs> dodgeball, but with ultimate frisbee, or with, a, or with a flat ball. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's great. Well, Zach Ford, it was a pleasure to hear about your journey into film, and good luck with the premiere of Watcher. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a it was a pleasure. Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path.